0: Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. Laurie Anderson is one of our greatest living artists. Her work includes spoken word and performance, top-charting albums and music videos, digital art, film, virtual reality, and the invention of ingenious instruments like the tape bow violin and the talking stick. She's won the Grammy Award and many other honors, and she's currently the subject of a fantastic solo show at the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C. Lori is also a longtime student of Buddhism and meditation, and in our interview, she shares her personal path with Buddhism, approaching art with a beginner's mind, staying present with suffering without letting it overwhelm you, and making our lives meaningful. I think you're going to enjoy this. So Lori, thank you so much for joining us as a guest on A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us.
1: What a great title. (laughs) How did you come up with that title?
0: Well, a lot of my friends are skeptics and many of them were curious about enlightenment. <laughs> so it just seemed natural over the year. I was their only Buddhist friend. So they would ask me and I didn't have a good answer because I had a more religious traditional education in Buddhism. So I wanted to make this podcast to help people have a secular path into it.
1: That's a very good motivation because, you know, I think that when you really have to explain something to people who are, super skeptical it's quite amazing because you you have to start from almost nothing in a way right yeah
0: yeah yeah absolutely well you know i'm curious to hear about your journey with buddhism i bet for some of your friends you're the only buddhist they know but could you talk a little bit about how you discovered buddhism and what role it plays in your life
1: it was originally about attention paying attention Mm -hmm and being able to focus. And it was thanks to a friend of mine, Bob Alecki, who I was working with. And he had and has a really wonderful ability to quietly focus on things, see how they work. And so I said, how are you doing this? And I, I really love asking people stupid questions like this. Anyway, Bob was telling me that he had been having a lot of trouble concentrating. And so he went to Barry in Massachusetts to the Insight Meditation Society headquarters and and did a 10-day silent retreat. And he said that after this, all of his scattered thoughts had calmed down and he was able to focus on things that his mind was like, as he put it, a beam. You could focus it over here and there and look at things for a long period of time. And so I thought, whoa, I'd like a mind like a beam. So I went there myself to Incite Meditation Society, it's called in Western Massachusetts. And this was in 77. So they've just been I think it was maybe their second year, maybe their third, but it was very early in their programming and they were quite hardcore at the time. So you would get up at four and you'd meditate, then you'd have the only meal of the day and then a bell would ring and then you'd do walking meditation and sitting and then you'd have some water and then you'd do it. So it was, you know, many, many hours a day. They said, why are you here? And I said, Um, here to get a mind like a beam." And they said, oh, no, no, no. It's like, this is based on pain. And I said, no, I, I'm talking about a beam. And they, so they were, they were, it was, we had a conversation that was very ridiculous, kind of ping-ponging between pain and beam and pain and beam. And then finally, I realized after doing it a couple of days that it really was about pain. Because they said, you're here because you're in pain. And I said, no, that, that is not why I'm here. And I realized that was why I was there and that it was a very unique way of looking at pain. And the idea was that when something happens to you and you don't just ah, scream and freak out, you put it somewhere. Mm -hmm. Unlike in psychoanalysis, you retrieve it through language and stories. This way, uh, your body tells you things. As I learned more and more about the practice, I trusted that method because your body really doesn't lie and your body has a mind of its own and it does things, it remembers things and it puts them places. If you feel anger, sometimes your jaw clenches. If you feel lost, sometimes you feel it in your heart. Anger somehow is in your liver. It's very, you are a library of pain. So the idea with this practice is to find it. It's painful to sit there for 18 hours a day. Your left arm feels like it's going to fall off. So when it does, you focus on that left arm and you find many emotions in there. And that was the start of this. And at the end of that particular 10-day period, one of the things I noticed was that I had, after that period of time, incredible peripheral vision. And I was doing a lot of sculpture then, and I was very excited by this idea that I could feel space around me, above me, behind me. And it was an absolute thrill. So it wasn't this space that is the eye space of, I see that in front of me, I look at it, I want it. It's the sort of vision of desire, but vision of experience of being in space. Mm -hmm. And That was, for a sculptor, a huge thrill Mm. to understand space in an an entirely new way without putting yourself in the middle of it. That was enough to hook me, even just that, to understand that I was in an ocean of sound, an ocean of air, and that I had a lot more freedom than I thought. Mm. And so it began to be about a lot more things than alleviation of pain and attention. But I have to say that, you know, I'm pretty casual about if somebody says, are you a Buddhist? I'm like, yeah. To me, that's kind of like saying I'm an artist. In fact, it's exactly the same thing because it requires the same thing, Mm -hmm. which is pay attention. Mm -hmm. That's really the only rule. (laughs) Let's just say it's a suggestion. That's the only thing you have to do, pay attention. There's nobody in charge. There's nobody judging you. This is the ultimate thrill for an artist is there's nobody at the top. There's nobody saying you did a good job or you didn't. You're the Buddha, ultimately. And who wants that responsibility? (laughs) Kind of nobody. You know, it can be extremely intimidating to think, I'm in charge? Who put me in charge? This is a big mistake. When you realize that you have, it gives you freedom beyond your wildest dreams. It is exhilarating. So over the years, this has changed many times, this practice, and so many different ways to approach it, ways to understand it. The very first thing that you here in buddhism as a truth is presented as a truth to you to believe mm-hmm. or not let's say to propose it a, as an experience and because all of these are for you to look at yourself don't believe what anybody tells you look at this yourself so the very first one of those proposals is life is suffering mm-hmm. and especially in the last couple of weeks we've had this almost unbelievable opportunity to experience that to experience despair to experience utter despair not push it away not try to say why it's there what we could do about it or oh my gosh this is worse than the last time no but just to let that be an experience and so I am really happy and grateful to have this practice that allows me to do that, not to just say, oh, this is such a geopolitical situation that we, but to actually be able to feel that on as many sides and ways as I can, because it it's coming from every direction. <laughs> and so what an opportunity to get that very first step. Life is suffering. And of course, then you go on from there. Okay. And then what? So it pushes you into an investigation of that situation of our situation, because it's easier also to sometimes to just let go of that very first truth and go ahead. It's not so bad. This is, this is pretty good. I'm having a good time. I'm learning a lot of things. It's a wonderful time to be alive. And all of those are true. But that basic truth is one that is opening up for us in a way that's just so powerful
0: yeah yeah it's so painful i agree it's so painful as with the mind techniques that we have from you know our teachers you don't need to push it away and you don't need to do intellectual analysis but yeah it can be a kind of food for your practice um, and also for your action. It's not just something to do in your mind. I know you're about to go do a benefit (laughs) for Ukraine. So you don't just sit on the cushion and help it evolve your mind. You get out there and also help in any way you can, right? I do. I try to, yes. Can you talk a little bit? I I know you became a student of Mingyur Rinpoche in Tibetan Buddhism, and it sounds like you started out with that insight meditation. Can you talk about your teacher and what you learned in that tradition?
1: Well, I think my attraction to Mingyur Rinpoche was his happiness. (laughs) He is a person who's absolutely full of joy and a kind of bliss that is impossible to mistake as something else. So I wonder, what is this about? He's also very frank and very simple. And I endlessly find myself quoting him because he's... Mm so articulate and very good with the epigrams. Mm -hmm. My favorite one is try to practice how to feel sad without actually being sad, which Mm -hmm. I found and find to be extremely profound that there are countless sad things in the world. It's full of sadness everywhere you look. And if you pretend that stuff isn't there, you're an absolute idiot. It's there. The important part here is don't become sad. Don't become that. Just because you see that, don't become that. So that is a very interesting and profound distinction to make because, of course, we're so wrapped in ourselves that we see something, we become it. And that's a kind of wonderful, empathetic thing in a certain way, but not in many other ways. Not good to do do not become sad, do not become sad, is his message. Do not become sad. Life is joy. Everything is joy. You may not see it that way. So the study of impermanence, I think, is one of the things that helps people come to this conclusion of joy. If you're stymied on that thing and go, joy, what are you talking about? Are you talking about misery? You just said the world is like totally suffering. Where's the joy part come in? And I think... Just speaking for myself now for a second, I'm able to make that jump because of one thing, and that is the concept of impermanence. And as an artist, I also study time and how it looks in various forms and music and images. And so the teaching of impermanence, that absolute constant change, That was the basic tenet of many artists that I love, John Cage being the main one, someone who bases his practice on that. And then when you really do let that sink in and realize there's nothing to hold on to here, nothing, you cannot hold on to anything. Like in a certain sense, you could just go, this is really a mess. There's nothing to hold on to, nothing that I can hold on to. Yeah. And then when you let that sink in in a few other different ways, you realize that it gives you this sense of crazy happiness, potential, freedom, the ability to stop living your life as a series of things that you're predicting and then you just live out. It gives you the ability to improvise. Mm-hmm. For me, in music, it gave me a, a whole other way to think about what note should follow another one. It helped me stop just living a life that I thought I should, or really that somebody else thought up for me. And it's helped me take responsibility for myself. And In relationship to others, too, when you think about what it is to be accepted by other people and how you create those relationships and those things that you think are necessary to be accepted, you realize that you're doing a kind of act of violence against yourself. And so you learn self-sufficiency and not to think about what is so-and-so thinking about me. And it helped me as an artist, too, so... I think it's been maybe over 10 years now that I have not read one single thing about myself and it improved my life enormously. I don't know if I'm considered an absolute idiot or not. And I realized I actually really don't care because it was getting in my way of how I saw things. I didn't want to be someone who was looking at myself and my work from a distance. I wanted to do it what I felt would be interesting and what was compelling to me. And then in the last couple of years, I think myself along with everybody else on the planet, or maybe not everyone has gotten a chance to experience solitude. Mm-hmm. And that has been, you know, a Buddhist making machine, you know, yeah. worldwide. you know, everyone kind of goes, Oh yeah. Uh, what would that be like? Not to be on that merry-go-round that I was always on and not even thinking about and just thinking, i got to be on it because everybody's on it and we're all on it and we better stay on it forever. And then people go, I'm not even going to go back to work, I think. (laughs) Work was not interesting. It was awful and I wasn't thinking about anything. I didn't, didn't have time for myself or didn't have time to take a walk. And so this slowed down, I'm sure changed many people's lives. I think other people right at the moment, I don't know if you're feeling this, but I'm feeling intensely this thing of, okay, we're back to normal. Let's go. And they're in hyperdrive. I get more email now than I ever have in my entire life of people who are like, back to business. And I am trying to just really drag my feet in every single project. I'm working on a very complicated project in Denmark now. Mm -hmm. And the guy I'm working with recovering from COVID and he's got a bit of a fog, but he's really appreciative of it. And we both are going, why are we going to jump back into action? And he said, let's just think of it as um more like gardening. Yeah. And I thought, bingo, let's think of it as gardening. <laughs> so that's how we're going forward on that. Mm. And it it's just enormously wonderful <laughs> to... Think of how to really learn from experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. And find a gentler way to re-engage with everything. This topic of impermanence you brought up, in that topic, we also typically think about death, which is something you've been doing in your art, making these beautiful versions of the Tibetan Buddhist teachings on the stages we go through when we die. That's called the Bardo. Um, And you released an album called Songs of the Bardo that you did with Tenzin Chogyal and Jesse Parrish-Smith. Can you talk a little bit about what these teachings on the dying process mean to you and the impact they've had in your life? You've you've given a lot of your creative attention to them recently, and the results really beautiful. I love it.
1: Oh well, I think it's partly like looking at something that's usually surrounded by fear, and so that's one of my motivations. Let's look at what's scary about that, and when you actually go into those teachings of the Bardo, the forty nine day process that Buddhists believe that happened to you after death, as your consciousness evolves into another, maybe life form, we can say, Mm -hmm. or another, um, well, anyway, let's not get too specific about
0: that. (laughs) (laughs) Something happens.
1: Yeah, I found those... Teachings is really amazing not really specifically because they're about death but because it made me realize that this is the bardo also this conversation right now what will happen in a minute what happened a minute ago and I think the most extreme part about that is what happens to death and in a way the easiest way to see it but that when you start really thinking about what it is you realize you're already in it
0: <laughs> Surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my teachers, Lama Zoba foshe he once said, when you think you're going to visit a dying person in the hospital, but actually you're both dying. <laughs>
1: you know? Yeah, exactly. We're,
0: yeah. we're all in that that continual process.
1: Uh, yeah, in one step or another, we are. We're in the process of being reborn as well as dying. And so it is a a kind of tipping Back and forth. Mm -hmm. I feel sometimes when I can understand it the best is I feel it's a way my consciousness could absorb these transitions, birth and death, and feel kind of mind blown by them. (laughs) (laughs) And also probably, even though I've always been interested in things like birth and death, just being with them, my husband dying was a very profound experience for me and made me very happy in many ways, because I saw someone do that so well, and so naturally, and with such enthusiasm. Mm. So that was a profound moment (laughs) for me to see Mm. that would be a way to approach these huge changes.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Um, And yeah, for those of us who've had the privilege of, I had a friend who was a nun who died too early, but she died very well in the way that that you yeah. said as a, as an example to us of how to make that transition really meaningful and beautiful and even joyful. I think for a lot of people, it's hard to imagine that could be true, but. yeah, no,
1: it's, a, it's <laughs> apparently, I think one of the most exciting things that could happen to you where you just kind of go, Oh, that's, Oh, whoa. No matter what you believe, that is a big thing to lose your body. Yeah. A very big thing. Um yeah. <laughs> and, what do you think might be left?
0: It's quite surprising when I first started studying with the Dalai Lama because he said he rehearsed his death six times a day. And then he was quite excited <laughs> for the time when it would come. It was really a, a big shock to see that, at least that Tibetan Buddhist approach to death, that it's a kind of adventure.
1: Yeah. And I think it depends on what you want. It's very important to want to have an adventure. Mm-hmm and want to see something other than what you're told necessarily want to experience mm-hmm. it for yourself, mm-hmm. feel that energy to look at it. And sometimes that's hard to muster because our culture is very anti that it's very much about pushing things away and euphemism To, But I, I also find that it brings out a certain kind of heroism in people. I'm, I've just been watching Zelensky who sounds like Gandhi to me in many ways. Oh
0: yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So,
1: He's in his bunker. The Russians are saying, we're definitely going to kill you. And somebody goes, okay, how's this feeling? My life today is wonderful (laughs) because I believe that I'm needed. And that's the most important sense of life is that you're needed. And then he said that you're not just an emptiness that breathes and walks and eats something. I was like, wait, who wrote that? That sounds like Allen Ginsberg or Gandhi or somebody like that. Suddenly it was like, okay, this guy's, is he a Buddhist? Yeah. Emptiness that breathes and walks and eats something. You know, here's the president of a country who has the microphone and he could talk about freedom in his country and loyalty and oppression. And no, what he says is something incredibly personal. My life today is wonderful. Who asked you if it's wonderful? You know, <laughs> I'm telling you, my life is wonderful because I am needed. Yeah, and this is really something to say. This is somebody who has gotten beyond some borders there. Who's who's really talking to people, not spouting stuff about freedom and oppression, this and that. And I also like watching his um, clips of him dancing on Dancing with the Stars in 2006. (laughs) He
0: had a number of really amazing outfits. Oh, yeah. I saw him doing the single ladies um, music video yesterday. An old clip. That's amazing. He's incredible.
1: Yeah, A very joyful person who is understanding what is going on very well Yeah, and helping people. And that's the, the other in terms of the big things that I guess Buddhism can give you is not just your sense of relief of your own pain, but the sense that you dedicate everything that you do to... All beings. Mm-hmm. I suppose the thing I appreciate the most about learning Buddhist principles is the incredible freedom that it gives you. Yeah. You're nobody's slave. Yeah. You may be your own slave, but you can fix
0: that. Oh, that's wonderful. I wanted to ask you, you talked about impermanence, we talked about the death meditation. These are, I guess what you call analytical meditations, you know, meditations where you fill up your mind. There's a type of meditation you talked about in the beginning. You start with the mindfulness meditation where you clear your mind or you see what's passing through it. But these analytical meditations, you deliberately put stories in your mind. You go through a narrative. And for you, who is one of the greatest storytellers I know or know of, I wonder if you could talk about that relationship between storytelling and analytical meditation, the stories you tell yourself in meditation versus stories you tell other people? How does that work?
1: You know, I I try to stop that story machine. It helps me to stop the language. That's what I like about Vipassana, which is the very technique of using the body. Because I can tell a million stories to make a million different points, but the body is not having it. (laughs) It's going to go, oh, you can tell that all you want, but I feel this way. So it's why I think, you know, it was a big mistake for the Catholic Church to start translating the liturgy into languages other than Latin. Picking it out of Latin meant people are starting to think, oh, what's the story here? Or what does that word mean? Instead of letting you, the mantra, let's say, or the Latin chant, take you. And free your your mind into another place. It's what music does too. It starts helping you free yourself from meaning mm-hmm. into a much more, let's say, tangible world or state in which you feel things and understand them rather than put them into words. Mm. Always trying to put things into words. And a lot of things cannot be put into words. And yeah. And words can't be put into things. You know, it's they're two universes. I, I mean for me, stories help me a lot to try to understand what I'm trying to do, but they get in my way when I'm trying to do it. Make a transition to when I stop looking for things and stop analyzing them. And oh, there was such a great let me see if I can find that mm-hmm. interesting thing that somebody just told me about. It was a question posed to Leonard Cohen. And the question was, how do images usually come to you? Mm. And he answered, well, things come so damn slow. Things come and they come and it's a toll gate. They're particularly asking for something that you can't manage. They say, we got the goods here. What do you want to pay? Well, I've got my intelligence. I've got my mind. No, we don't want that. I've got my whole training as a poet. No, we don't want that. I've got some licks. I've got some skills with my fingers on the guitar. No, we don't want that either. I've got a broken heart. No, we don't want that. I've got a pretty girlfriend. No, we don't want that. I've got sexual desire. No, we don't want that. I've got a whole lot of things. And the tollgate keeper says, that's not going to get it. We want you in a condition that you are not accustomed to and that you yourself cannot name we want you in a condition of receptivity that you cannot produce by yourself. How are you going to come up with that? What's the answer? He says, I don't know. I've been lucky over the years. I've been willing to pay the price. So his answer really is in a way to try to forget the whole thing and be Very, I guess the word would be receptive without expecting what to get. When he says pay the price, it's an interesting thing because that's what Joe Biden just said to Putin. You're going to pay. What were his exact words?
0: Pay for his actions or something.
1: And since then, I realized this is a transaction. And we're watching it happen. And Putin is going, yeah, I'm going to pay. Can you give me a discount? No. Okay, I'm ready to pay. I'm paying for it. I'm doing it. I'm paying for it. You've just acknowledged that this is a transaction. Yeah. Some people are going to get hurt along the way in this transaction, but hey, it's just business. And it's another way to see this as a toll gate. <laughs> but when you ask what is the price of enlightenment, you know, what is the price of my education as Buddhist? You realize there is none. So it stops being like that, that you, you really have to be in what is sometimes called beginner's mind. I'm a, a natural in that just because I think of myself as a total idiot. You know, I feel like a lot of things I say are stupidly pompous. I, I don't really understand what I'm saying often. I mean, I try not to put myself down too much, but I do see myself as someone who knows very little and just likes to take some guesses at this or that and try my very best to do what Leonard Cohen is saying, which is don't list the things you need to know and how you're going to know them and how you're going to make sure that other people know that you know them. <laughs> you know, this, this whole thing, just stop doing that and think of it as just this kind of thing that will hopefully blow your mind and take you into a, and the most recent teaching that I've been doing is with teacher Nimbikyu Analayo. Mm-hmm. He is a wonderful theorist, but also a wonderful practitioner. And he takes you through these 16 steps in the Anapana And it's so logical and doable in a way that it's kind of breathtaking. And I just realized how grateful I am to my teachers. If someone would ask me, you know, how could I go in that direction a little bit, I would just say for me it, it's been finding teachers who know a lot more than me and just asking them questions and and then experimenting for myself to see if I respond to that. And then trusting myself enough to say no, I'm not. That's not going to work for me. Or,
0: wow, that's really going to work for me. That's wonderful. That open mind, too. I think a lot of us are closed off to authority, but if you find the right authority, <laughs> you can really learn something from
1: it. And I'm not sure I would say authority, but the authorities that I really love yeah. encourage you to be your own and don't believe me. Don't take my word for it. Yeah. It's the greatest. Teaching and but but here's something that you could think about you know, those are the great ones that I'm happy to find those people, yeah. And there's a lot of them. This is why I love this image of Bob Thurman that keeps putting out this image of the jewel tree, yeah, yeah. And this is to me a very valuable image and something that you can do whether you're a Buddhist or not. Mm -hmm. You can make a visual and tree is a kind of good thing because it's a kind of happy. Mm-hmm. image and on that tree put everyone who you admire and love and also helps if they know some things your uncle al krishna whatever and and then just recognize that they are all there to help you that's their job <laughs> and, and you have access to all of this and they would like to be on your tree <laughs> You're not like torturing them or anything they would like to be there.
0: They would like to help you. You touched on work a couple of times about how the pandemic has you know, made people reconsider their work. And you're also a person who's phenomenally productive and engaged with your work. I hesitate to, to call it work. It's such it's so joyful and so beautiful. But I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the role of work in your life and especially advice to people struggling with that now, trying to figure out what work is, how to live a meaningful life beneficial life as someone who I would say you're someone I really admire and doing the most with your life through your work.
1: That is a bit of a weird thing (laughs) to call it work because for many people, it has to do more with being able to put food on the table. Yeah. Yeah. And find a way to do that. that Survival. Yeah. And in my work, as you pointed out, elaborate form of playing around with different (laughs) things. So I think one of the things that is great about this particular moment is people are finding that maybe the work that they have been doing isn't the work that they feel is giving them the most satisfaction in some ways. And so it's a wonderful time to look at that. And a lot of people are kind of downscaling or whatever. They suddenly realize, I don't really need a hot tub. (laughs) Because it's stressing me out and I could probably just as well go for a walk in the rain, a nice, free, misty, natural rain and get just as much, maybe more, and I wouldn't have to work nonstop. So adjusting those things and maybe even finding some work that if you had any reservations about the meaning of your work and that bothered you, I'm not saying that it's not cool to do any kind of work that you like. But if you had any reservations about that, then you can rethink it. And I wish that myself, I was able to apply what I'm saying because I suddenly realized I have to go on, on these kind of makeup concert things in April. And I'm terrified. I don't remember how to play. I don't remember why I would be on a stage. I don't know what I would be doing there. I just, it's called being very rusty, I guess. But I I'm like, why would I do that? And that's my work, supposedly. Afford to do this is like go out and do these kinds of things. And so I'm going through that same thing as well. Just going, is that really uh, what I want to do? Is it worthwhile? I, I, I don't know. So I'm not just saying this like it's an easy thing to think about. I'm thinking about the same thing. and And I think it's good to keep pushing that around in your mind, because even though you don't have the answer right now, at least it's something you're thinking, well, I should pay attention to that. Maybe it isn't the thing for me. And uh, maybe I'd like to do something that's more engaged in a different way or less competitive or less lonely or just more fun. You know? <laughs> yeah.
0: So, Lori, is there anything else you want to add before we let you go off to prepare for your Ukrainian benefit?
1: Oh gosh, I I don't have any like little pearls because life is so hard. But I guess one of the things that I'm learning about breath with Bikyo Anulayo is really simple. And it's just a couple of steps that I can say a lot of people who study Buddhism really do try to rely on their breath and, and noticing it and just feeling it. So I found that some of the very first steps in this process are so valuable. Just giving yourself time to breathe and notice it. And be curious about it, be relaxed about it, and then let it fill your whole body so that you become mm-hmm. aware of your whole body. And then the next step is to calm all of your body activities. So I, I just find even those four basic steps so helpful to me to just let breath fill your body and then just completely calm it Elsie has a really lovely voice when he instructs you to let go of all the things that you're worried about and oh but i have to think he, he just goes something what does he say no need for that now mm. as soon as i hear that i'm like no need for that now i just can relax and i think to let yourself stop doing all of that stuff is a really important thing to start you on the journey of going into this kind of crazy areas that he's pointing to, but he does it so gently that you just go, Oh, okay. I could, I could do that. <laughs> so so I, I, I wanted to thank Bikyu Analayo for his incredible teachings. So you can check him out in BCBS in Barry has wonderful books and wonderful teachings online. And, you know, I, I just, at the moment, find him uh, really super inspiring, <laughs> as I do many people, including Zelensky, the Gandhi of our moment.
0: Well, that's a great, simple mantra to take away. No need for that now. I think right. I can remember right. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Laurie, thank you so much for joining us on A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. I'm I was so grateful that you gave us some of your time. And I think people are really going to benefit from this. We're also going to include some tracks from Songs from the Bardo in the episode following this as a little guided meditation with your permission. So thank you so oh,
1: much. sure. And the other musicians in that, Ruben Cordelli, especially the cellist and Shahzad Smali, and jesse paris smith and a wonderful singer tencent joigo so it was really fun to do that because we just we had no plan we just improvised that thing entirely as a live performance and we had so much fun doing that because we went into the present in that live thing honestly nobody had any idea what we were doing so you read i'll play you do something else and, and you sing and once in a while and then we were just caught in this present moment. And so we thought, oh, well, let's record that. So try to record the present. Good luck. But anyway.
0: <laughs> well, it's beautiful. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Really nice <laughs> to see you. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Bye. See you later. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for my conversation with Lori Anderson. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to our podcast. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported entirely by donations that keep all our content free and ad-free. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. If you'd like to deepen this conversation please join our newsletter or our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, where we can be found under the name Skeptic's Path. Thanks to Tara Anderson for producing and editing this episode, Christian Perry for audio mastering, Jason Waterman for marketing and digital production, and Isabella Asibal for social media. We wish you a wonderful day.